on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. This is season three, episode two. Sarah, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about you, Eric? I'm very good. So today we have a special guest, Sam Bowles from the Santa Fe Institute, to talk to us about a a lot of his work, but particularly some work he's done in the past couple of years. So Sam, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for putting me on. Thank you. So we'll go ahead and get started. So first, some questions about a paper you put out recently regarding sort of Econ 101. The core project that you co-founded is an ambitious attempt to get a more adequate treatment of institutions into the intro econ courses. Can you tell us about how you're doing that and kind of what are the mechanisms behind that? Yeah, sure. It's a it's a big multi-person project. We have collaborators from all over the world. Eight or 10 countries are, are, are part of our author pool. And um, we started thinking about this back at the time of the financial crisis and also the problem of climate change was on our mind and also economic inequality. And some of our students were having the embarrassing experience of, you know, going home for holidays after the financial crisis, and um, their parents would say, "Oh, well, um, what's going on in the economy?" And uh, you know, if economics majors wouldn't have a clue. And similar questions came up, you know, just from ordinary people, one's parents or one's neighbors, and so on. And um, we were convinced that what students were really interested in was what they ought to be interested in, the questions that I mentioned. And they've repeated that over and over again in polls that we do around the world. Thousands and thousands of students routinely come back and tell us that inequality and climate change are the main issues that economics ought to be dealing with. And so Wendy Carlin from the University College London and I, we'd known each other for many, many years. And we thought, well, you know, if we're gonna address these questions, How would we, what economics would we have? We immediately were told, wait a minute, um, if you're going to do a new textbook, there's this so-called 15% rule, which is you can change 15% of the content in any textbook, but you have to do it, you know, 15% at a time. And so we started out with with an interesting idea. We didn't start out in chapter one with uh, thinking like an economist or supply and demand. We started out with real problems in the world and focus students' attention on a real problem and some things about measurement, get them up to speed with some quantitative skills. And then we go on to say, okay, now what can we do about these questions? How can we understand them? Well, once we had laid that trap for ourselves, we realized the 15% rule wasn't gonna work. Because if you change what's in the front of the book, you're gonna end up changing the whole book. Because if you want to deal with inequality or climate change, you absolutely have to deal with problems of tipping points, power, increasing returns to scale, or 
positive feedbacks and so on. These are things that are intrinsic to studying those particular problems. So what we found was that having put inequality, climate change at the front of the book, we had to put capitalism at the front of the book too. That is a set of institutions that works in a certain way, not just any old optimizing problem or any old kind of market economy. We had to put a set of particular historical institutions that exist out there and teach the student that this is what we're going to try to understand. And so we we start off with a very dramatic first chapter. We call it the hockey stick of history. We have a thousand years of GDP per capita and things kind of rumble along pretty flat with um, India and China and European countries being at about the same level of income. And then the curve goes roughly vertical in the 17th, 18th, 19th century for the UK and after that for Japan and so on. And we asked the students, well, what could be the cause of that? How did it happen? And then, and what are the consequences? We immediately bring up the question of this tremendous growth in global inequality, which took place as a result of Europe taking off and the whole world's output shifting from Asia, where it primarily was at the time, to the UK. So they've already got inequality and they've got climate change, of course, because we also record also over a thousand years, the average temperature changes um, and emissions and so on. Now, so I've said two things. One is we have a different pedagogy. We start with a problem and say, oh, that's the problem. Now, here's, here's some models that might work. And, but it's interesting what happened. I can't really say we planned it this way. But in explaining the long period of basically stationary per capita income, we introduce a very simple model of a Malthusian type. And so the first equilibrium that they learn about is a bad equilibrium. The students always think equilibrium means good. And so the very first thing they encounter is that idea that things can equilibrate at a, at a position which is really very antithetical to human well-being. The second thing we do is we're gonna to try to explain this takeoff as what's the first model that, that they get of, a, of that nature? Well, it's Schumpeter. So we have innovation and innovation rents. And the first, the first competition process the students study is competition for Schumpeterian rents, looking at the, you know, the cost of energy, the cost of labor, the industrial revolution in, in, the, in the UK. Now, it's led us to propose somewhat ambitiously, but we think we're on solid ground, what we call a new benchmark or maybe even a new paradigm, to use Thomas Kuhn's term. And if you think about a paradigm in Thomas Kuhn's scientific revolutions paradigm idea, in any field, biology or chemistry, whatever it is, you have to make some basic decisions about what are the entities that you're studying? How do they interact with each other? What are the legitimate questions you can ask about these entities and what constitutes a good way of going about answering it and a decent answer? Now, in economics, what that means is you have to answer questions like, what are people like and how do they interact? And then how do they interact with nature in securing their livelihood? We have come up with a set of answers to those questions, some of which are very similar to the standard paradigm in some respects, but most of which are quite different. For example, what are people like? 
Well, people are not at all like homo economicus. Of course, we're like that when we go shopping. And sometimes we're like that when we interact with each other. But we're also capable of astoundingly generous and ethical behavior, which is part of our makeup as much as our self-interest is. How do we interact with each other? Well, the standard paradigm, which is taught in uh, undergraduate courses, is we interact with each other as price takers on competitive markets. Now, wait a minute. Nobody believes that. Uh, nobody believes any part of that. Uh, everybody knows that you have a lot of other interactions that are part of how the economy works as neighbors, as fellow employees, and so on. People know that the big actors in the economy, of course, they're price makers, whether they're banks or whether they're companies setting prices or wages and so on. And of course, we know the competitive market assumption is really a special case of a more general representation of firms competing with each other on more or less monopolistic or oligopolistic terms. An important part of how people interact with each other that goes beyond price-taking interactions is some people have more power than others. And this is not because of lack of competition. It's an intrinsic part of a competitive economy. Once you realize that in many of the markets that we talk about, the market doesn't clear. That is, you'll have regularly excess demand or excess supply in equilibrium. And I mean in competitive equilibrium, for example, in the labor market. We now know there are many models They've been produced, by the way, from across the political spectrum. One of the major initial contributions was Gary Becker from the University of Chicago. And the argument is this. If you reject the idea that all we're doing is relating with each other through contracts, but some of those contracts are incomplete, they don't cover everything, like the labor market, the labor contract, it means you're supposed to show up on time and the employer is supposed to pay your wage. But whether you work or not isn't specified in the contract because it can't be. Uh, it's just uh, there's no way to specify what the worker ought to do. Well, one of the implications of the fact that the, the, the employer doesn't get your effort on the job, your real work on the job, as a matter of just in, uh, enforcing a contract means that there's an interaction between the employer and the worker having to do with disciplining the worker or motivating the worker and so on. Now, that's interesting because one of the ways that's done is the employer has the power to terminate the worker. And because there's unemployment, that's a serious problem if you're a worker. And that's the basis of the power of employers over workers. And we now know that that's not because of sticky wages or sticky prices or any of the ad hoc assumptions that are sometimes introduced. That's just a characteristic of a competitive economy in which employers are hiring workers. Now, what people say is, wow, that's stuff that's usually taught in advanced courses. Well, you know what happened? It is taught in advanced courses. And I mean, take any department that you know. And so there's people teaching the standard neoclassical models. Then along come some of the assistant professors who've been trained more recently, and they've studied game theory, and they've studied the kinds of models I'm thinking about. Well, they can't really fight their way into the, to the basic courses because they're only assistant professors. And so they're assigned to teach advanced topics in micro or something. And so the, the, way, those, the, the way these insights have been brought into the curriculum is often as advanced topics. But what we found is that it's extraordinarily simple to teach students this because they have experiences that are just exactly what we're talking about. When we talk about 
the firm and power relations in the firm. They know about that because they've heard their parents talk about it. They've experienced it themselves. They can see themselves in those models. So in any case, uh, what CORE is trying to do is to get issues like power, uh, the complex nature of human personalities and motivations, including generosity as well as self-interest. As I said, increasing returns, because increasing returns is the basis of some of the tipping points that we observe, meaning positive feedbacks. We want to get that into the intro class. And we've had, an, I think, amazing success in putting together a very, very teachable set of materials that does that. And we think, we call it CORE, by the way, it's an acronym. We call it CORE because for many, many years, people have been suggesting the economics curriculum is not adequate. And so somebody would suggest a course on Austrian economics or feminist economics or Marxian economics or whatever. And these are always uh, peripheral courses where they were admitted. 10 students would attend. And that was, of course, a good addition to the curriculum. But we said no. The core is wrong. It's just not good economics anymore. And it's not what we're teaching our grad students, by the way. So that was our mission. And we're pretty happy with how things have gone so far. Yeah, great. Thank you for that overview. I have to ask, though, are you optimistic about the further integration of these ideas into the Econ 101 curriculum? Well, it, def it depends on what country we're talking about, Sarah. In the UK, probably more than half of the people taking intro are studying core. That's amazing. And I don't think any textbook has had that kind of dominance uh, ever because you know, there's 10 or 12 big textbooks out there. Our success in the UK is really remarkable and partly it's luck, but we're now on the way to similar success in Spain. We have, of course, this is the thing I didn't say, uh, is this is all free. It's online, it's on your phone. Any device you have, it's yours for free. And that's our principle. Anything we produce, but the knowledge that's in, we do publish books, but whatever's in the book is available free. It, and there's no premium version that you can pay for. It's just that it's the top stuff you get on your phone. We've had less success in the US, although we are taught as the intro course in a number of places, uh, in, including Princeton, Colorado State, and a, a few other places. But I think, and we've had some success in Latin America. There's, uh, there's uh, Spanish, Italian, and other versions in France also. I think it's safe to say we've had, we've had a lot of success in the elite institutions of Europe. I mean, uh, Sciences Po in Paris and the Toulouse School of Economics and Oxford and University College London and so on. These places are all using our, our materials now. So we're not sure why the pickup has been slow in the U.S. And part of it is that I think our the core intro may be pitched at a slightly higher level, it's really pitched pretty well for first-year students in European universities who, on average, have already studied some economics and they've already studied more math. So they're not too afraid of graphs and handling data and so on. But I think what I'm optimistic about is that the, the paradigm that we're putting forward is definitely winning. I mean, something I don't mean our paradigm is winning, but the kinds of things we're talking about are going to be the economics of the future. There's no doubt about that. We're not going to be talking about 
price takers and homo economicus and so on. That's all changing because of the fantastic research done, again, right across the board ideologically. Yeah, you're as likely to get good new ideas from Chicago as you are from Harvard or any other, or UMass. And so, and I think people in economics, I mean, we really do care about social problems. We won't admit it often, but we really do care. And um, And I think the younger generation of new PhDs are doing great work already within this new paradigm. So I think eventually the uh, intro will catch up, but I don't think it's gonna be as rapid as the, the Great Depression, along with the publication of Keynes General Theory, had an almost immediate effect on how intro was taught in America. 12 years after the general theory was published, Paul Samuelson wrote his 1948 introduction to economics, and he did turn the book upside down. He taught macro before micro, and that was a a really dramatic change. And that book was almost immediately successful because people knew we had to study aggregate demand somehow. And I don't think we're having the kind of crisis now that is forcing economists to say, oh, there's something fundamentally wrong with our with our models. Although I think probably the ever-increasing inequality and social tensions surrounding that and the problem of climate change will eventually force economists, particularly those under the age of 50, to invest a little bit and make a change and put a new set of slides together and uh, change what they teach undergrads. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks. That's great. And we certainly encourage everyone to take a look at that. So moving on to a piece you have coming out, um, The Origins of Enduring Economic Inequality in the Journal of Economic Issues. Uh, we wanted to explore that some. One question we had, uh, and I certainly encourage everyone to read this article when it comes out. It's really great. It has long been thought that the move from hunter-gathering to farming starting about 10, 11,000 years ago resulted in this big increase in inequality and changes in society generally. You, you find, though, that the inequalities didn't increase till much later. You write that communities had aggressively egalitarian practices, which deterred inequality. Can we talk about those? And are there any lessons for today, given the, as we've identified inequality as a major issue? Yeah, well, this, this is an amazing thing that I found out over the past decade. I've been uh, seriously studying archaeology with a team of others, including archaeologists. And... The reason why I turned back to ancient history is that, you know, when we study inequality today, the work done by Piketty and uh, Atkinson and so on, it's almost all from the last 100 years or last 200 years because it's all using tax data. And we didn't have taxes on wealth and income until very recently. So what it means is we're looking at countries which are really very, very similar. These are mostly capitalist countries, for the most part with representative democracies, if not a liberal democracy and universal suffrage, and virtually all of them are European. Now, so what I wondered about is, well, what are the really big changes that happen in income distribution in terms of the effects of technology or the effects of institutions or the effects of culture? Because I aspire to write a book about the future of inequality, that what What can we do today to ensure a more just future? So the only way you could do that is to find out, uh, do we really know what the effect of technical change and institutional change is? So also, the obvious thing to do is go and find some data on societies in which there were really big changes in technology 
like shifting from hunting and gathering food to producing it as a farmer, or big changes in institutions like not having a government. I know that sounds odd, but hunter-gatherer societies, they governed themselves, but they didn't have a government in the sense of having a state. That is a body which could enforce things uh, by the use of coercion within a particular territory. So I, I started this project at first sort of out of curiosity. And I used to say, well, I'm a recreational archaeologist. But I, I kind of got hooked. And so what we did was we collected all the data we could get on anything which could be an indicator of inequality. And we measured inequality consistently over 11,000 years. And we even have some observations 18,000 years ago, but they're very few and we can't say much about them. And one of the things that we noticed, which was pretty striking, is that the early farming societies in the Middle East, which is where farming started 11,000 years ago, 10, 9,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, these societies were as egalitarian or at least not substantially more unequal than the hunting and gathering societies that they replaced. And now that's odd because uh, it wasn't just that people made up this idea that farming was going to create inequality. There was some reasoning behind that. If you're if you're growing a crop like a cereal, you can store it. And if you're a hunter gatherer, most of the stuff that you hunt or gather is either wild animals, often it's fruit, often it's tubers, and the shelf life of any of these things is very short. So it means you can't basically store it. Well, not being able to store means you cannot self-insure. If you're successful as a hunter, uh, you've got a large wildebeest or something. What are you going to do with it? You don't have a fridge. So you basically share it with others. And then through some sense of reciprocity, if you have um, ill luck on the hunt for a period of time, you can access other people's kill as well. So hunter-gatherers had an egalitarian society, probably out of conviction. That is, they probably were convinced that that's the way to live, but it also served their needs in terms of co-insurance, that is, contemporaneous insurance. Once you get cereals, the lucky or the skillful farmers can essentially pack the stuff away and pull out of these sharing arrangements and form what uh, anthropologists call a patron-client relationship. It's a, it's a relationship of very unbalanced reciprocity with a dominant figure. And that, of course, is the beginning of a chiefdom and ultimately, ultimately other forms of political centralization. Now, that didn't happen for four or 5,000 years after farming started. And that's, well, what's that about? Well, of course, the, you know, the problem with prehistory is you're looking at just little pieces of evidence, but the evidence is quite striking. For one thing, there are a number of cases in which farming societies, what we know is farming societies almost certainly shared the stuff which they stored, the grain. And how do we know that? It's because the, store, the storage areas were in public places. I mean, here are all these houses. We see the, the remains of the houses, and the remains of the storage pits are right in the middle of all the houses, and the houses don't have any storage. What happens as time goes on, more towards maybe six or 5,000 years ago, is we begin to see the storage moving indoors. 
uh, the storage start we st start to see storage inside the houses and less evidence of these communal storages so there's, there's some process of private property developing and in some cases you even see a massive storage of one house and then limited storage of others and that person is probably the employer or the enslaver or maybe the landlord for sharecroppers of the others so that does begin to happen but it happens very late now, what we observe is what an archaeologist of one of these early places called aggressive egalitarianism. And what that meant is, for example, they not only didn't bury lavish wealth with their dead, they actually buried the dead, but they took the heads off the dead and then they put them in a different place altogether. But what I mean, what a cultural thing. I mean, I know you may think it's kind of uh, shocking, but it's a statement that we're not really separate. And we also see evidence in some of these places of the largest buildings having been burned. And, and in some cases, some quite valuable tools were also destroyed. Now, we know that from modern ethnographies uh, by anthropologists, that many societies have these rituals or customs of sharing. So that, for example, in herding societies, it's not at all unusual that when a rich individual dies, and if they had 100 head of cattle, there will be a, a huge feast to celebrate and wish the spirit of the deceased well. And the entire community is invited to this feast. And of course, the question comes up, well, what do they eat at the feast? And the answer is, they eat the cattle of the deceased. And in some societies, it is the entire community is invited in, and the immediate kin of the deceased is not allowed to eat from the herd. Um, so it's 100% it's a, it's a tax rate on the, on the wealthy. So, so many societies have adopted these practices of rebooting equality every generation. And that has to do with destroying the wealth of the rich, not passing it on, not inheriting it, uh, or this kind of thing, um, which many, many uh, people in North America know, know this as a potlatch, which again is a huge gift-giving uh, operation by, by the wealthy. In, many, in, in a couple of places, we have pretty good evidence that inequality did develop. And, but in the one place we know best, it develops, we're studying this with Gini coefficients of the house sizes. And the house sizes, we used to be all the same, and then you start some really big ones and, and so on. And then what happens after that? When you get a Gini coefficient up to almost modern standards, place disappears. It's gone. Now, what happened? Well, was it attacked? No, there was nobody anywhere near who would attack it. People just left. It was, it was on a beautiful plane very fertile. Remember, there were very few people living in the world at the time. There was a lot, a lot of land. And so the most likely thing that happened is that the less well-off who were being increasingly exploited in, by, in some means by the well-to-do just voted with their feet as they could do. So the um, my co-authors and I think that two things changed. And one was technology and the other was institu institutions. The technology that changed was the development of the ox-drawn plow. They were not using plows up until then, they were using hoes, hoes and digging sticks and so on. The ox-drawn plow is, I mean, you can think about this as the, um, the robot of the Stone Age. 
a plow drawn by a team of oxen can plow under average conditions about as much as six or seven workers could do with hose and sticks. And interestingly, that's very similar to what some of the evidence is for the worker displacement from robots. Now, you don't have to you know, follow all the details of the economic argument, but if somebody gets an ox and a and the uh, ox team and a plow, they'd have to be rich to get that, by the way. That'd be a big investment. Then they can farm a lot of land. Now, to them, land becomes very valuable because and they can farm a lot of it. And it's very productive. The productivity of labor goes way up. So they can afford to hire people or to acquire them probably as indebted subordinate people or probably not enslaved people initially. They essentially now employed people who were increasingly redundant because the demand for labor was not as great as the demand for land. And so then land becomes scarce and it becomes something that it's worth owning. Now, that process is really dramatic because what it means is now, I mean, if you go back to the hoe farmers or the hunters and gatherers, what distinguished a well-off individual or family from one that wasn't so well-off was their physical abilities and their networks. That is, their ability to share with others and get information from others, and also just the strength that they have and their physical health. Now, the two things about your health and your network, your, your, so let's call it your relational wealth and uh, your physical wealth or your human capital. The first thing is those things are intrinsically not very unequal. I mean, somebody can be five times stronger than me or five times a better farmer, but they can't be a thousand times better. And the same is true with social networks and social capacities. I'm setting aside people who are seriously um, mentally or physically compromised, a small minority. The other thing is what mattered in the economy now was something you could inherit. So the inequalities of one generation show up in the next generation instead of just being dissipated. So the the fact that these things could be owned uh, and they could be held very unequally and passed on from generation to generation allowed permanent inequality become to become a characteristic. Now, of course, there is, as you might expect, there's a mathematical model in back of that, but it's a simple story. If you have inequalities happening by chance every generation, but if the wealth isn't inherited, well, that's all you've got is these inequalities coming in from time to time. But if you have inheritance, then you have inequality today is inequality today, plus the inequality of the previous generation, plus the grand parental generation and so on. That's the first thing, technology change. And what also changed at about the same time, but I'll have a bit more to say about that in a second, was we began to see the development of political centralization. I won't call it a state, not in the sense of Max Weber. It didn't really monopolize the legitimate use of force. But rich people got to be more powerful politically and have ways of coordinating their own activities through some kind of bargaining among elites. And this eventually led to proper states, like as in Egypt on the Nile and then Rome and uh, Sparta and so on, Greece. But what that did is it meant that the fact that land was now becoming scarce and filled up by other farmers owning it, and you had states now defending your house from being burnt down, meant that a society could sustain a lot of inequality. And 
What I find really remarkable is the combination, the technical change, which we're still living with, by the way, and the, the technical change and this this political centralization, we begin to get levels of inequality about the level that we have today. Now, and by the way, by about 5,000 years ago, we have Gini coefficients for wealth that are about as high as you'll see anywhere. I mean, it, after 5,000 years ago, it's basically flat. It doesn't really go up or down. And the important thing is it doesn't go down. I mean, we, we uh, my co-authors and I said, well, of course, let's take the modern cases of democratic societies, including ones like Finland and Sweden and so on. There, we must have some kind of redistribution of wealth. Not at all. The distribution of wealth in Sweden is much more unequal today than it was 100 years ago. And the same is true in Finland and so on. So there's what we have is an event which happened in what's called the Bronze Age. That is about 5,000 years ago in the, in the Middle East. And that's a period in which inequality went from a Gini coefficient of about you know 0.3 or 0.25 to something like 0.6 or 0.7. And then it's been like that forever. And uh, now there are there's there's one exception to the that's how high it ever got, which is societies in which enslaved people constituted most of the labor force. They are very unequal compared to normal state societies. By the way, you don't have societies with enslaved people constituting most of the population or most of the workforce that don't have states. And you know you don't have to be a genius to figure out why that is, because if you don't have a state, you can't enslave people because they fight back. So armed with a state, the slave owners were able to have extraordinary levels of inequality. And we see that in our data set. The first real example of that is in the Roman Empire. But so to summarize, what we found out is that inequality for the last 5,000 years has been extraordinarily high hasn't changed very much, doesn't differ much between feudal or city-states in Italy or representative democracies or, I mean, it basically isn't, it really doesn't matter very much your institutional structure. Of course, the modern democratic societies do redistribute income. They don't redistribute wealth, but they do tax wealth so that poor people have higher incomes. And there's an extraordinary amount of redistribution. So the, the hardship and injustice of the highly unequal wealth is not as great in the social democratic countries. But the basically, there's only two pieces of news here. The societies which don't have states are much more equal. And societies in which enslaved people are an important part of the labor force have much more inequality. And then there is the question, well, where does technology come in? It looks like this process of the formation of states was probably induced by the formation of a rich class of people who were in need of protecting themselves. And therefore, they felt the need to cooperate with each other in giving up some of their autonomy to a state which could protect their joint interests. And and so I guess that's like a two-sentence summary for the origin of enduring wealth inequality. Well, you just uh, hit on my next question. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Eric? Thanks. So, yeah, and continuing on this theme of looking at this issue of enduring inequality, you write the transition to a land-limited economy may have contributed not only to sustained wealth inequality, but also to institutional changes that would perpetuate these. 
a large extended households with complex multifaceted economies using animal traction farming are thought to be the early precursors of temple and palace-based landholding institutions. Cultural changes were also accompanying the transition to a land-limited economy uh, in a variety of places, including a wave of new prestigious rituals and other associations. Can we explore these a little bit? And what are they related to any kind of Veblen or Neo-Veblenian ideas about the use of ceremony to capture economic value and wealth? Yes, I, I've been impressed. I mean, obviously, we don't have much of a sense of ceremonies prior to the development of writing. I mean, we can do something. But for example, when when farmers were still egalitarian, this aggressive egalitarianism had many, many cultural attributes. For example, eating outdoors. It wasn't just, I mean, when inequality started to grow, it wasn't just that the storage went indoors, it's that eating went indoors. They used to eat on porches in public and, and sometimes in public places. And most of the houses in the, one of the towns that's very well excavated shows that there's a kind of a living room type space. And in the living room, there it's, it's decorated with the skulls and horns of wild, large animals. It's actually a wild version of a cattle. And it's fairly clear that what was going on there was a culture of sharing stuff that you hunted, and also, but also sharing other food, including the, this, the main cereal crops, because that eating outside was, you didn't yet privatize the process of consuming. Now, the process by which that got defeated, the radical egalitarianism got turned into something else that's a little better known because it, uh, some of that happens after we already have writing. And they have, you know, this, uh, the elevation of kings as being divine, uh, divine beings and so on. But I, th I, th I think that the, what you learn, I mean, I, I come away from this thinking a lot about Beblin because, again, you know, Beblin's asking economic questions and saying you can't answer them without referring to sociology and anthropology. And if I've learned, learned one thing, you know, I've, I've gone into this using fairly high-tech methods of measurement and statistics to measure these economic things. Again and again, you get puzzles that you can't answer with economic terms. I mean, the, the, the oxen and the plow are, that's a pretty good economic story. But of course, the, what that's hiding is, why didn't that happen 4,000 years earlier? And that's a cultural story, I'm pretty sure. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether or not there was a cultural shift which initiated the inequality. And again, it's very hard to nail this down, but what it looks like is that the inequalities grew for centuries before many of the cultural attributes of a hierarchical society came into place. So my sense is that perpetuating inequality required cultural changes but it wasn't like a cultural shift that, it, that initiated the inequality. You know, people sometimes have said, well, people invented religion or they invented some supernatural ideas and the supernatural ideas empowered a priestly class to dominate others and then economic inequality followed that. In my estimation, the data did not support that view. Yeah, that's really interesting. That was sort of my assumption. So I appreciated diving into your work and kind of having some of that, <laughs> those viewpoints challenged. So in some of your other work, you also discuss how ongoing research has led to thinking about differences between well-being and utility. Can you explore that a little bit? 
Well, I've been, I, this may be surprising given what I've been talking about, but I've, I've been teaching um, microeconomic theory all my life. And that sounds like about as far from this topic as you can get. But the, I'll, I'll say a bit more about that. One of the things that, that really comes across, both in the theoretical work that I've done and in the anthropological and archaeological work, is the need for interdisciplinarity. Now, I remember when I used to rail against my teachers that economics was not sufficiently interdisciplinary. I kind of was on weak ground because I was interested in families and religion and things that sociologists study and states. And I thought that should be more kind of on our table too. And they said, oh, that's other people study that. What I'm learning now, either from archaeology or, or from microeconomics, is that being interdisciplinary is not optional if you want to be a good economist. Questions like, how are wages set? Uh, okay, that's an economic problem. Nobody says that's a sociological problem. But wages are set with respect to things which involve both the exercise of power and work norms, that is, uh, intrinsic uh, desire to work, work ethic, and so on. That is, the modern theory of wage setting requires us to know something about what the other disciplines are teaching. So it's, not, uh, it's just not optional. And now to get back to your question, Sarah, I think, I think economists, economists have essentially been lazy because we like to talk about better and worse situations, and we use uh, Pareto efficiency and other terms to help do that. But we really don't like to think about um, philosophy, and we don't like to think about you know, right and wrong and better or worse. At least we're not willing to do the hard work that philosophers do about figuring out how to develop a language which can un unambiguously pose questions about, uh, say, inequality. Now, the problem with utility is this. We use utility to predict what people do. And so, you know, we derive a demand function from a utility function. And so that's how that and that's our prediction about uh, based on the person's utility function. Uh, so person's preferences or anything that helps you explain their action that's not their budget constraint or some other constraint, and it's not their belief about the way the world works. So beyond beliefs and constraints, the only thing we have to explain what people do is preferences. Now, what that means is that preferences have to include not only tastes, which everybody agreed taste should be satisfied, but what about other preferences like addictions? Or what about bad habits? Think about evaluating a anti-smoking campaign. And suppose we're evaluating how much consumer surplus there's going to be before and after the, the program. Suppose it's successful. Suppose what it does, it just lifts the price of cigarettes. Well, that reduces the consumer surplus of the people smoking. And, so, and they stop smoking. Now, the people who stop smoking are probably very happy they stop smoking. They don't feel they've been deprived. They had what I call a regrettable preference. That is a preference which caused them to act in ways which they later regretted. We have quite a few of these. If you study Daniel Kahneman's for work, for example, we often make decisions or make choices that we later regret. Now, satisfying those can't be a good idea. So we have to 
we have to think hard about this. We need to have something that we think, something about like preferences or desires or intentions that we'd like to honor and try to have them fulfilled. But if we want our utility to explain what people do, then we're going to have to explain um, uh, then we're going to have to take on board things, preferences they have that they wish they didn't have. And this isn't just smoking. I mean, think about obesity and think about all kinds of things that you and I do that we sometimes regret and wish we didn't do. And now that's, that's, that's not an easy problem because which preferences count? Which preferences should count? And is this opening the door to paternalism? And, and that's, I mean, some people talk about soft paternalism and so on. But, you know, I think that we really are sort of schizophrenic because when we, our view of preferences is kind of, the, I mean, there's a, there's a word in philosophy, for this. it's called liberal neutrality. We don't differentiate between preferences. Any preferences are fine. Anything goes fine, whatever. And that's kind of like a, it's a, it's a principle. In economics, we think we, in order to be a good liberal, you can't basically have preferences over preferences. Now, I mean, when you when you tell students this, they they find it hard to really think through that uh, because they know that we do have preferences over preferences. For example, when we're raising children, we regularly try to train them to have certain kinds of preferences and avoid others. When we're working as a teacher. My daughter's an elementary school teacher, but I feel the same way towards uh, all of my students, which is, of course, I have sets of values that I'm trying to instill in them, to love science, to be honest, and so on. And so we regularly violate our own precepts, which is just, as I say, a, a little bit of schizophrenia. So I think we should take seriously the notion, I mean, Bentham Jeremy Bentham, the founder of utilitarianism, he thought that preferences were about pleasure and pain, things which we felt. And if, it, if that's what they are, well, clearly we should have more pleasures and fewer pains. And he thought they could, they, they could do both. You could both predict and you could both evaluate on the basis of them. I think we're pretty sure now that we can't do that. And so we have to open up the idea of which preferences are, should be validated and, and pursued and which ones should be discouraged. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Sam. It's been a really fascinating discussion. We've covered all kinds of interesting topics. The core econ, we certainly, you know, I think that's great. And we encourage others, and especially in the United States, to take a look at that. And the fascinating discussion of inequality, which is such a critical issue today. And, and again, your paper in Fiscal Studies about Moral Economics, uh, really fascinating stuff. We really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks for having me on, and thanks, Sarah and Eric, for your questions. I've enjoyed thinking about the questions you've asked, and the beat goes on. We're, we're dealing with very hard problems, and it's a very tough world we're in, and we have to just keep hammering away with on basic ideas of what would make the world a better place for, uh, for everyone. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.